Well, we have been traveling through the book of Matthew for several weeks. And last week, you'll remember, Chad talked to us about Jesus' authority. And so this morning, we're like in step two of that. We are continuing in chapter 9, starting in verse 14. And it still is talking about and shows and amplifies and focuses on the authority that Jesus has. The authority to do his ministry, the authority that he brings from heaven itself to speak to the needs of people. Now, if you and I watch the news... If we turn on the television, if we listen to the radio, if we open Facebook, if we go to work or school or interact with family or friends or neighbors, it seems that at every turn we can find out that trying to do the right thing doesn't mean you're going to be understood. Very often you are misunderstood. And so it was with Jesus and his disciples. At the same time people were bringing their friends to Jesus, other people were trying to keep people away from Jesus. The opposition is beginning to grow at this point in Matthew's gospel. In the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus had forgiven, the, you'll remember, the paralyzed man. He, he forgave him of his sins. And he was healed. And the teachers of the law responded quickly because they said only God can forgive sin. Now today on this side of that we go, yeah. But in those days, that was pretty heretical stuff. So he's accused by the scribes of blasphemy. And then the Pharisees, the kind of predominant religious leaders of the day, Accused him of being with sinners. Oh, imagine that. He got around some other sinners that we find in verse 9 and 10. And now here we are just a little later, and he gets questions from the disciples of John the Baptist about fasting. Matthew and his friends and Jesus were feasting, and beginning in in verse 14, the Bible says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So here Jesus is stuck between two religious extremes. You've got John the Baptist's ministry. It was all about repentance in how he lived, in what he looked like, in what he did or did not eat. You remember John was considered kind of a wild man. But that was part of the message he had. And repentance was in, the, in all of that and how he displayed it. So when Jesus came on the scene and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Then naturally John's followers were expecting to see this lifestyle in Jesus. And maybe they didn't. The Jesus group is feasting while the Pharisees and the disciples of John are fasting. And their attitude is, well, you know, they fast and we fast and why don't you? Bunch of party guys. It wasn't that he had come to abolish fasting. That wasn't the point. Remember, Jesus began his ministry. He took like a 40-day walk out there and he was fasting in the wilderness. So he, 
didn't come to get rid of fasting, but he started his whole ministry with, fast, with a fast. And in verse 15, and by the way, I should have mentioned this earlier, if you'll just keep your Bibles open this morning, we're going to kind of break this apart as we go, so you might want to refer to it. But in verse 15, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Isn't this the Jesus way? He's, he's become our pattern, hadn't he? Because he set the example over and again. You ask Jesus a question, and he would probably answer it by asking you a question. And he was trying to get you, the questioner, to think. He had, he had already demonstrated his authority over sin, as well as over a sinner named Matthew. Remember, he called Matthew. This tax collector, as a result, became a follower of Jesus. And here Jesus is continuing to declare his authority over traditions like fasting. Fasting in that day was, was about sadness. and It was about mourning. It was about brokenheartedness. They had been hold, these people had been holding on to the past because it had been very much a New Testament way of living. Fasting was very much a part of how they followed the traditions. Now, by itself, that's not a bad thing at all. Their fasting was longing for the coming king and Messiah. They were longing for the day that their guy would ride in with a sword and run the Romans and all those other evil guys out of the country. That's the way they saw the coming king. And Jesus kind of turned them on their ear just a little bit because suddenly he was, uh, he was trying to help them understand that the king had shown up. The king was there. The kingdom was on its way. He was there. He was the bridegroom. Excuse me, he was the bride. He was the groom. Let me get that right. I didn't call Jesus the bride, okay? He was the groom. And... Uh, he had arrived and it was time to celebrate. Throughout the Old Testament, we, you and me, that are believers in Christ, we're referred to as the bride of Christ. And he's coming back for us one day. And you and I will have the opportunity to be at the ultimate feast, the banquet with God. So understand, God considers this whole terminology significant. He calls it, he calls us his bride. Now, those of you who are married in here, if you'll think back, whether it was recently or a long, long time ago or somewhere in the middle, you'll remember that during those days, it's kind of magical, isn't it? You have no money, usually. You have an old car, you have lots of bills already because if you've been independent of each other and all that, you got to figure out each other's in-laws and outlaws and relatives. And some of them you probably, well, it was great. Man, I'm so glad to meet him and her. And then you meet the crazy uncle and you're not so sure. And, you know, but it was a magical time, wasn't it? Men, you were willing to do anything for the love of your life. I hope were is not the right term. Were, but I hope that's still the case. But, you know, there's no more special person on the planet than the woman you're about to marry. I, I have those memories too. So think about the significance of God calling us his bride. 
and how that underlines how important the church is to God. Not this building, but those of us who are here this morning, those of us who are believers. Think about the significance of that, that he's calling us his bride. We are loved by God. We matter to him. And here, he equates his ministry with a wedding party. And probably their heads kind of went sideways like, what? But he's talking about the wedding feast. Now, in those days, the typical Jewish wedding lasted for seven days. So you shut your shop down. You quit making pottery. You didn't sell any stuff. You went, if you were invited, you went to the wedding for about seven days. And it was a party. And he's trying to draw a comparison. He's saying it would be unnatural and rude to show up at the wedding party and not celebrate. And then he uses two illustrations to also follow up on, on this whole idea that he was trying to make. In verse 16, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment and make the tear worse. Now, you know, today we have chemicals that keep our fabrics from shrinking. Well, if you'd just gotten it off the sheep and woven it up together and now you've carried it on your back, you didn't have those kind of preparations that we do today. So the fabric would shrink, wouldn't it? And he's saying you don't put a new piece of fabric on an, in an old cloth tear because it's going to pull away when it shrinks because that's just the way cloth did. So he's, he's making a point here. Hang with me. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. The coming of Jesus was something new. He wasn't coming to give an update or a revisioning of the system that the Jews were operating under. He was bringing something new. New. The new wine symbolizes the good news of the kingdom of the kingdom that has come in Christ. The new wine skins are whatever teaching and conduct that points us to the Messiah, that points us to Jesus. Now you know, new wine ferments and it swells. And if you put that chemical reaction in a skin that's already hardened because it's been old, then it's got to go somewhere and it won't stretch anymore, so it will burst. It will pop open. And he's trying to point them to the idea that this represents Judaism. The teachings within the Torah, the book of the law, those writings that they had followed so carefully for hundreds and hundreds of years, which were about fulfilling what Christ was bringing, had become a bunch of unbiblical traditions in many ways that our OCD Pharisee friends had made lists of things you and I could, as people of God, could do or not do. And he was saying, if you put the new wine of the gospel into the right skin, it will hold, it will be preserved, it will be great. But if you put it in something that's already established, it will split apart. So Jesus is here to challenge everything because he's come to fulfill or finish that that has been promised. He's the fulfillment of that. The way for people to come to God was brand new. And hey, the bridegroom has arrived. That's me, he said. But he also said there was a time to fast. 
because he wasn't against fasting, because there would come a time when he would be separated and the disciples would long for his return. The believers would long for his return and fasting would be appropriate because we would be thinking about the cross and we would think about him rising from the grave and we would think about him ascending into heaven. And we don't want to ever lose that, by the way. We want to always be able to focus back on the cross, his rising from the grave, and ascending into heaven. That's part of who we are, and we don't want to lose that. There is a day coming, though, when the bridegroom will return to gather his bride, the church. And at that point, pain and sickness and disease and suffering and death will be over. There is that day coming. But in the meantime, if we who are forgiven of our sin and stand clean before our Savior don't have a reason to mourn, we don't have a reason to be sad. In fact, we have every reason to celebrate. So when we gather in a place like this this morning and we stand to praise him and to pray and to open his word, it is a time of celebration. Now, some of us grew up at a time where it was just nobody talked and nobody breathed. Let's all be really still. And we still like some of that. But it's okay to smile. And the same kind of celebration that happens when you welcome each other for about three or four minutes every Sunday, it's okay to keep that going throughout the service rather than it's time to mourn and be sad again. So every once in a while when I say something really ridiculous and you smile, it's okay. Okay? So. It's also interesting to point out that from this point forward, Jesus starts to talk more and more about his coming death. Once he, it's, it's kind of like when he decided it was time to open that door a little bit and start talking about it. And so we're going to see this repeated as we move forward in the book of Matthew. And the point there is it wasn't an accident. His death was not some untimely, terrible thing that happened. His death was all in the plan. His death was the result of faithfulness to the will of God. So when he goes to the cross and he goes through the, the pain and the agony that he does, it's all in the plan. It's not because he was imposed on by the Roman army or by the Jewish people. It was because he was ready to do that. Jesus not only has the power to save, which we've talked about some, but he also has the power over death. In verse 18 and 19, we see this. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Now, the father's name here was Jairus. And we know that because of the accounts in Mark and Luke that talk about this event as well. And, and they give us a little bit different slant. He was the leader of the local synagogue. So he was living in the midst of all these religious leaders that were so down on Jesus. They were challenged by Jesus. They didn't want Jesus around. And they um, were nothing but hostile. So he was used to that. 
But remember, he's the leader of a synagogue. He's a religious leader in the midst of people who don't like Jesus. So here he comes, and apparently he trusts him. Because when, he, when it comes to our children, all the conventional wisdom goes out the window, doesn't it? The things that we have said, sometimes we back up from. Because when we get concerned, we will attempt to move heaven and earth to try to fix that. Because we love our children. So there's several things we can learn from Jairus here. First of all, Jairus coming to Jesus was no doubt an act of desperation. And while we may not see that as the best motive, if it gets you to Jesus, that's, that's the way it should be. It's okay to be desperate if it gets you to Jesus. Because sometimes when we're not desperate, we think we've got everything under control. And the truth is, we never have everything under control. Only Jesus has everything under control. So he didn't run to the doctors in town or the religious leaders. And a bunch of them had gathered there with, at Matthew's house in this scene. There were scribes and Pharisees and disciples of John the Baptist. They were all there. But they didn't come, he didn't come find them. He wasn't looking for them. And that's been the case for many of us through the centuries, hasn't it? We might not come to him have we, unless we get to the point of desperation. And when we get desperate, we're willing to do whatever it takes to fix it. So however you find Jesus, however you, whatever process you went to, through to find Jesus, or however you get to Jesus, even today, the main thing is that you find him. The primary thing is that you find Jesus. If you feel desperation, if you feel the weight of your sin, if you feel like you have just run out of options this morning, why don't you just turn to him? Just call yourself desperate and go for it. Turn it over to Jesus. You can do that this morning instead of carrying this weight around like some of us do. And second, Jairus' faith is demonstrated in his posture. He knelt before Jesus. This is the leader of a synagogue coming to a man who seemed to be saying everything opposite from what he had believed his whole life, and yet he knelt before him. And we see his faith as he kneels before, and acknowledge, before Jesus and acknowledges that he has the authority to save his daughter. He knew he had the authority to save his daughter. And what did Jesus do? Well, he berates him. He cuts him down. He talks bad about him. He, well, no, he doesn't do any of that. <laughs> Scripture says he just got up and went with him. It was like, okay, let's go. He didn't say, why are you guys in the synagogue talking about me? He just got up and he went with him. He didn't give him a hard time about his motives because he had the power and the authority to meet the man's need and the need of his daughter. So he just got up because he could do it. He could handle that need. No one else can meet needs like Jesus. No one else can forgive sin and take it away. No one else can clean my life up. No one else can make me better. No one else can fix it except Jesus. Now, so he gets up and he starts to move. And in verse 20, it says, just then a woman 
who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. And he said, take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. So he's on the way to see Jairus' daughter. A sick lady touches his garment. She's considered unclean because she's been bleeding for 12 years. 12 years. That also classifies as someone who is in desperate need. Desperation. She is a picture of desperation. She believed that just touching his robe would change her life. So consider her desperation just a minute. She was unclean. She was unhealthy. She's been bleeding daily. According to Jewish law now, she couldn't even go to, the, to worship. She couldn't participate in Jewish religious life. And Jewish religious life, even then, was the center of everything for God's people. And she couldn't participate in that So she was un- because she was unclean. She was also isolated. No one could touch her. No man could spend time with her. If you came in contact with her, you were considered unclean as well. Wherever she sat was considered unclean. It's kind of like the lepers who said, who had to go through town saying, unclean, unclean. Well, you just didn't get near this lady. No one could cure her. No one could cure her. The Bible tells us that in Luke 8, 43... He, he says no one could cure her. And in Mark 5.26, he wrote that after seeing doctors, instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, it's a miserable existence. A miserable existence. But she believed if she could just touch his garment, she could be well. And so she did. And so you got this crowd around him. There was, you know, the disciples got up and went with Jesus too. So there's this bunch of folks moving to Jairus' house, and he felt the touch, and he knew that he had been touched. He knew there was somebody around him who needed him. He knew that someone was in desperate need. And that's good news for us here today as well. If you're in the midst of despair, Jesus knows your struggle. Whatever is going on in life, you won't get lost in the crowd because Jesus knows. He knows every detail. He's intimately aware of everything that's going on in your life. When you think you're the only one that, po- that could possibly understand your situation, I want you to know there is someone who understands your situation even better than you do. And because you're a child of God, you have his attention. So in verse 23... When Jesus entered the synagogue, leader, the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away, this girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. Now, being on this side of history, I have a hard time how, understanding how you could laugh at Jesus, you know, but um, they didn't know who he really was, so they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put aside, outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread 
throughout all of the region, all that region. I bet it did. So when you're showing up at a, at a morning experience like this, there were usually people around you. And they were usually, sometimes they were hired, women would be hired to wail and mourn and people were playing music and people were clapping their hands and beating on their chests and tearing their garments. And it was kind of a spectacle, particularly uh, if you were able to afford these people to come in and, and put on this show. So Jesus couldn't figure, I mean, people couldn't figure out why Jesus had even shown up. So first he, clean, he, he heals this unclean woman and then he shows us his authority over death by raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. And I bet the laughing stopped. And as they're walking out the door going, what did you just see? I can't believe that he's going to do what? So we've got two back-to-back miracles. Both of these stories are connected, though. Nothing in God's Word is happenstance. Nothing in God's Word just, it's like, well, the circumstances were such... No, there's always a plan. There is always a plan. Both of these stories that would seem, she would seem to be kind of like you stuck the bleeding woman in the middle of him bringing this girl back to death. How, is, how does all that work together? Both were beyond help. Both were considered unclean. You, couldn't, you did not touch a bleeding woman, and you for sure didn't, t- didn't touch a dead body. Interesting that Matthew points out that Jesus took her hand because that was a big no-no. You don't touch a bleeding woman and you don't touch a dead body. Both were in isolation. You had one that was dead and another believing she was bleeding to death. Both were clearly beyond help. There was no cure for either one of these. You can't cure this bleeding woman, the Bible says, and there was certainly no cure for the dead daughter. That is, unless you're Jesus. No one is too unclean. No one is too isolated. No one is too helpless for Jesus to save. This is what Jesus does for everyone who's saved from sin. It's what Jesus does for all of us who come to faith in him. Sin makes us unclean. It contaminates us. It keeps us from coming into purity or before the purity of God's presence. Sin must be dealt with. There must be a cleansing. So sin is unclean because sin isolates us. Sin keeps us from God. And that's the worst thing about sin. No matter how bad your sin is for you, the biggest thing about that is that it separates you from God. It builds a wall between you and God. It pushes you away from God. But sin isolates us also from other people. Isolates us from relationships, individuals, family members, groups of people, races of people. That's the way sin works. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned turned away and will not listen anymore. He has turned away. And will not listen anymore. It's pretty tough.
How long have you, has it been since you felt like God wasn't listening? Because the indication is he's always listening. And yet you and I can get so disconnected from him that we can feel like we are totally alone in whatever we're having to deal with. Even though we can read in places all throughout scripture promises that he will be with us. Our condition then is hopeless apart from grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Dead in your transgressions and sins. That's pretty hopeless, that death thing. Even as a 10-year-old boy, before I accepted Christ, even before I accepted him as a 10-year-old boy, I was dead in my sin, and I did not even know it. Some of you have come to Christ as an adult. And you probably were more aware of your sin just by the nature of your maturity. But whether you're six or eight or 88, you're dead in your sin without Christ this morning. Now down a couple of verses in four through seven, it says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is a powerful picture of love, of grace, resurrection, power, and salvation in this account that Matthew gives us of a dead daughter and a bleeding woman. Before we become Christians, we are dead in our sin and are slaves to our sin, and sin has us wrapped up in a nice little box. But after we receive Christ, we get to become alive. He took on death for us. In fact, Jesus and his death is the death of death. Death was no more after that. Someday, I'll be in a coffin and I'll be put in the ground. But I won't be dead. This body will be dead. This body will not continue to breathe. But I won't be dead. I have signed up for the eternal team. Jesus took on death and said, it's over. So I don't have to kill any animals and, and have sacrifices. I don't have to do those things that these people had lived under. Jesus was bringing something brand new. And in these passages, we just get a small picture of the amazing thing, amazing story of salvation. Now, if you're a believer this morning, you've accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, there ought to be something very reassuring about this picture. 
of a hopeless, helpless, isolated woman and a hopeless, dead daughter who Jesus pronounced them alive. Alive. Reminder of the joy of our salvation. You know, if you read in the book, in, in Psalms, you know, David has, David is a guy who spent a lot of time challenged by people around him. And sometimes he would lash out and sometimes he would be very loving and sometimes he was just kind of mellow. But in Psalm fifty-one, twelve, he asked God to restore to me the joy of your salvation. And so if you and I have a need to ask God to restore the joy of our salvation, we are in pretty good, we're on pretty good ground. Because even the king needed that. But you know what? I think this morning that probably some of us here have been struggling with the joy of our salvation. Maybe some of us here have found our Christian life to be a bit stale. Maybe you have felt isolated lately, even though you know Jesus is just a prayer away, just as close as your next breath. I'll bet some of you even feel a little disconnected from God this morning. Now, I don't read your mail, and I don't know what you're thinking, but I know in a room this size, with as many people as we have here this morning, there's a few of us that are disconnected. We have just been trying to do it all on our own. We think we have the answer, and it just seems to slip away. But instead of going to the power source, we've just let it get kind of cold, and we just struggle on in ourselves. Are you that way this morning? Do you ever have those times when you think you're the one that can do it? You can make it happen. You're in charge. I would challenge you this morning to consider that. I would challenge you to consider that perhaps this morning is that your prayer in just a moment during this invitation should be, Father, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because I'm really tired. I've really been struggling. I've really tried to do this on my own, and it's not getting me anywhere. Could you please take over again and let me get in the back seat. So in a moment, while we're singing, I hope you'll be praying that God will step in and freshen up the joy of your salvation. And you might want to respond by coming down here to pray. You might just want to bow your head where you are. But please take a moment. If God is knocking on the door of your heart this morning just a little bit, to say, hey, you're still my child. You're part of the banquet that's coming in eternity. Why are you struggling so hard? He's saying this morning. To several of you here in this morning, this morning, there may be the need to find him in the first place. Maybe you've never accepted Christ into your life. Maybe you've just been hearing preaching and 
Bible study lessons and all of this for a long, long time. And it just doesn't make any sense to you. If you'll open your life to the Holy Spirit in the next few moments, it will start to make sense to you. You can receive him this morning. Maybe you've been considering being a part of this church family. And for whatever reason, you're just hanging on. You're just deciding to wait. You're going to see how things work out. I would suggest to you that by becoming a part of this church family, we can help you with how things work out. So that's your opportunity now. Our praise team is coming. We're going to sing about how great God is. And you're going to have an opportunity to respond or not respond. Father, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Greatest step I've ever taken. Most important step I've ever taken. And it changed my life forever. It changed my eternity. I want the the eternity that's eternal life rather than the eternity that's eternal death. How about you this morning? I pray God has his will in your life. Let's stand together. Father, we're praying for you to have control of us now and that we would respond because we know you are our only hope. And we are indeed in a desperate people needing all that you can help us with because we just can't do it ourselves. So your will, Father, we're praying for in this room, in these moments, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.